Friends, even as we prepare to hear God's word preached, let's remember what our Savior said about how we ought to hear his words. Jesus said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, so trials will come. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Beloved, let's be careful that we not only listen intently, but also trust and heed His Word. That your faith rests not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God that is able to guard your soul and enable you to endure till the very end. So as we return to our sermon series in 1 Corinthians... Let me now invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll look at verses 1 to 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13. Let's ask the Lord for His help as we approach His Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would now transform the desires of our hearts that we, may desire, that we may desire good and not evil. Show us the folly of trusting in ourselves, of trusting in the ways of this world that we may flee from idolatry and flee to Christ. O oh Lord, indeed, He is the source of all that is good and true. Teach Your people to be anchored in the wisdom of Your Word. Grant us the grace to despise our sin and to love Christ our rock and our redeemer. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. It's tragic how often trusting in your abilities can lead you to overestimate your success. Just ask the builders of the Titanic. In 1912, advertising materials from the shipping company and the media, newspapers and magazines all push the narrative that because of its technologically advanced features, this ship was unsinkable. On April 14, 1912, at 11.40 p.m., the Titanic on its maiden voyage struck an iceberg. When Philip Franklin, the vice president of White Star Line, the shipping company that operated the liner, when he heard that the Titanic was in trouble, he said, and I quote, there is no danger that the Titanic will sink. The boat is unsinkable. And nothing but inconvenience will be suffered by the passengers. On April 15, 1912, the Titanic sank to the bottom of the Atlantic. Of the estimated 2,200 plus passengers and crew, more than 1,500 people died. It was reported that the unsinkable ship was unprepared. It did not have enough lifeboats. The ship carried many wealthy people, and many who were, many of whom were 
emigrating to the United States to begin their new lives. It took three years to build the mighty Titanic. God's mighty ocean swallowed her up in less than three hours. Two hours, 40 minutes to be exact. Captain Edward Smith went down with the ship. Now what many people don't know is that the Titanic received multiple warnings from other ships in the vicinity about the dangerous icebergs that were ahead. Why the captain ignored the warnings is anybody's guess. Was he confident about the sturdiness of his ship? Was he distracted by, with other things? Or did he think that the warnings were overblown? We'll never know. What we do know is that overconfidence and presumptuousness is a dangerous thing. And friends, this was the Corinthian problem. This was the Corinthian problem. There were some at the church at Corinth who were spiritually overconfident. And Paul warns them, look at verse 12 in, verse, in chapter 10, he warns them, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't presume on the grace of God. Now remember that this was a church that was not lacking in spiritual gifts. But some members had become proud because they were empowered by the Holy Spirit with speaking gifts. The gifts of wisdom and knowledge. These were instructional or teaching gifts, manifestations of the Spirit given to the church for the common good, for the building up of the congregation. But instead of serving others in love, some teachers began to boast in these gifts for their own purposes. Paul describes these believers as puffed up, arrogant. They saw themselves as somewhat elevated above the rest. And because they had something that their culture admired, speaking abilities, this drew them to places where the residents of Corinth would often socialize at the temple. They would often accept invitations to eat meat, sacrifice to idols with their non-Christian friends at the temple. And in their enthusiasm to exercise their Christian liberty to eat whatever they wanted, they failed to consider two things. One, while food was just food and the idols were not really gods, in truth, demons were being worshipped at the temple. And by participating in those meals at the temple, these teachers were placing themselves in grave spiritual danger. And two, they had also failed to take into consideration what their actions were having on other Christians, on weaker Christians. And so Paul says to these Corinthians, your insistence on your rights, on your right to eat whatever you want, isn't really loving. There are weaker believers who are being socially pressured to joining you, to join you in your eating, even though they think it's sinful. Because of their pagan backgrounds, they think that this food is actually demon-possessed, defiled. They think they're participating in idolatry when they eat, and yet they eat. They willingly sin against their conscience. Why? Because of you, 
They want to imitate you. They want to join you. And so when you behave like this, you are sinning against them and you're sinning against Christ. And while it's perfectly fine to eat meat sacrificed to idols in some settings, we'll consider that later, Paul says it's not okay to do so at the temple where demons are being worshipped. And so Paul says to these puffed up teachers, you ought to give up your rights for the sake of loving your brothers. Be a servant. Exercise self-control. If you carry on like this, you will not only spiritually disqualify yourself, but you will also lead others into idolatry and you will make a shipwreck of their faith. The way you're applying your knowledge can destroy your brother, he says. And just because you're in church, just because you're a teacher, just because you've received all these wonderful spiritual gifts, doesn't mean that you are immune to spiritual dangers. True Christians don't say to themselves, I am spiritually unsinkable. No true Christians ought to say such things. No, true Christians are those who see the dangers of idolatry. They exercise self-control, they resist temptations, and they give up their rights for the sake of loving others well. And so in, chap in this chapter, Paul warns them about the dangers of idolatry by reminding them of another group of another community that was blessed by God with many spiritual gifts, but was nevertheless judged by God for their idolatry. And they were spiritually disqualified. And so there are three lessons we can learn from Paul's warning today. Three lessons that can help us run well and endure to the very end so that we don't make a shipwreck of our faith. Lesson number one. Where you find your security matters. Where you find your security matters. Paul says, don't look for spiritual security in your past experiences and in your spiritual gifts. He says to these puffed up Christians, I know you think you know everything, but you don't yet know as you ought to know. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, I do not want you to not know this, brothers. Remember, he's addressing believers, men and women who have been forgiven, cleansed, and justified before God and Christ. They had been bought with a price. They had been redeemed, adopted into the family of God, called into the fellowship of His Son, indwelt by His Spirit. This is their identity. This is who they are. And Paul wants them to know something. Look at the text that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. What's he referring to? Well, he's reminding them of Israel's exodus, isn't he? What the congregation of Israel experienced. Now keep in mind that he's writing to the Corinthians. They are largely a Gentile congregation, and yet he refers to the people of Israel as our fathers. Even though they were marked differences between the Corinthians and the people who came out of Egypt ethnically, even though there are significant differences between the old and the new covenant, the new covenant is new, it's superior, it's glorious. Christ inaugurated the new covenant in His blood. 
Nevertheless, Paul sees some continuity between them and us from a redemptive historical standpoint. He says they are our fathers. This is our history. This is our spiritual heritage. Paul says there are lessons and warnings that we can learn from the past, and we would be foolish, absolutely foolish, to ignore them. These are things that can help us endure and save our souls from destruction. Beloved, we must learn to read and understand the Bible just like the apostles did. It's obvious, isn't it, from this text that the Corinthians read the Old Testament? Paul expects them to know these things. Think about the Bereans who are commended in Acts 17, verse 11. They received the word, the word of the gospel, with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. What scriptures were they examining? The Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament points to its fulfillment in the New. This is how God has ordered redemptive history. And so the church, God's new covenant community, composing of regenerate Jews and regenerate Gentiles, the one new man in Christ, that, as Paul calls us in Ephesians 2.15, the church is not a replacement, but a fulfillment of Old Testament Israel. In Christ Jesus, the church is the new Israel, the Israel of God, the eschatological community. We're citizens of the new Jerusalem. Paul says in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. What promise is he talking about? He's talking about the one God made to Abraham, that through his singular offspring, Jesus, salvation blessings would come to all the nations. And so what Paul wants these Corinthians to see are those similarities, the similarities they have with their fathers. And he does this in order to caution them against pride and idolatry and self-confidence. He says, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He says, I want you to think about that generation. They were redeemed just like you. They were delivered just like you. You can read about that in Exodus 13 and 14. God protected them, if you remember, from the army of Egypt by placing a pillar of cloud between the people of Israel and the Egyptians. He then parted the Red Sea and he led them by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They had God's deliverance. They had God's protection. They had God's presence. They had God's guidance and leading. Think about all those spiritual gifts they had. But that's not all. Look at verse 2. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Just as the Corinthians were baptized into Christ by the Spirit, Paul describes Israel's passing through the Red Sea while being led by God's presence. He describes that as a kind of baptism. As a kind of baptism. What Paul means by being baptized into Moses is that the Israelites were initiated into, into the Old Covenant community under Moses' leadership. They were saved. They were formed into a distinct congregation. Furthermore, look at verse 3. 
and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. This is a reference to the manna that God provided for them to eat in the desert. Exodus 16 records that. Exodus 17 speaks about the water that he provided for them from the rock at Horeb. The food and drink is described as spiritual, not because the, not because the food and drink were immaterial, as though you couldn't touch it, but because they were provided by the Spirit of God. Look at the next verse. They all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. Verse 4. For, that's the reason, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. See, Paul doesn't mean that the physical rock that Moses struck was sort of bouncing around the desert following the Israelites. No, that, that's weird. No, this is a reference to God Himself. Moses in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 refers to God as the rock. He is unmoved. God is almighty. He's steadfast. He's faithful. He's unchanging. He is a rock. And he was the spiritual rock that followed them and provided for them. And then Paul makes this stunning claim. That rock was Christ. That was Messiah, the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, the Son of God in his pre-incarnate state was ministering to the people of Israel by providing for them physical water to drink. Just as he now gives us living water to drink, by His Spirit. Our fathers were led and blessed by the same triune God that we know, dear friends. Both the manna and the water pointed forward to Christ and were provided by Christ. They had their food and drink just like you and I have the Lord's Supper. They too were a distinct community just as you and I are the body of Christ. They too were called to put their trust in His Word and worship Him alone. In fact, all of them experienced the exodus. And all of them received these blessings. What's Paul's point? Well, he's saying, oh, you think you're doing spiritually well just because of all your spiritual gifts? Well, guess what? Even that first generation of Israelites, our fathers, oh, they had a lot of spiritual gifts even from Christ Himself. And guess what happened? That ship sank. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were struck down. God killed them. Their bodies were scattered in the desert. That entire generation of Israelites perished in the wilderness with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. Friends, God judged them because of their idolatrous, unbelieving hearts. Because they kept on giving into, the, into temptation and they sinned. Jude says it like this, Jude 1.5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. 
these puffed up Corinthians were so concerned about their freedom, so confident about their gifts, so desirous of their social welfare, so fond of having dinners at the temples of idols while being uncaring and unloving towards their weaker brothers and sisters. And Paul looks at that and he says, anyone who behaves like this should not think that God is pleased with them. Should not think that God is pleased with them. That is not the behavior you should expect of someone who has been transformed by the love of God in Christ. That is not someone who is denying themselves and walking according to the wisdom of the cross. And he says, if you continue in this way, whatever happened to your fathers will happen to you. You will not enter the promised land of the new earth. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved, where does your confidence, where does your security lie? What are you looking to for approval? How do you determine whether you're doing spiritually well or not? See, these teachers knew that they were Christians. They knew that they were gifted. But they were idolaters, seeking the kingdom of self, doing what pleased themselves, finding their security in what was attractive in one community, that's the church, and then looking for life and joy in another community, the culture of Corinth. Beloved, is that how you live your Christian life? calling yourself a Christian, attending Grace Church, but you find joy and meaning and satisfaction in your respective cultures? Don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about things in your respective cultures that you can legitimately enjoy, like the food you eat, for example. No, I'm talking about a particular way of doing things, values and principles and priorities that stand opposed to what Scripture says. I don't want you to miss what Paul is doing here. He's saying, this is your community. The people of God in the church. This is your community right here. These are your fathers. These are your brothers and sisters. The community of Christ where the word of Christ produces a heavenly culture. So brothers and sisters, don't disqualify yourself. Do not walk in the idolatrous ways of your fathers. And to help us understand this better, Paul gives us several reasons why Israel was judged. Broadly speaking, they were judged because of their idolatrous self-indulgence. And that brings us to our second point. How you respond to the saving grace of God matters. How you respond to the saving grace of God matters. Where you find your security matters. How you respond to the saving grace of God in Christ matters. Remember, all of the Israelites had the same experience, but not all responded in a heartfelt trust and obedience. Hebrews 4.2 makes this clear. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So how did they respond? They responded with unbelief, by desiring evil, 
And their account, their story is given to us in God's word to warn us. It's given to us for our spiritual benefit. Friends, the historical account of Israel in the Old Testament was divinely ordained by God as a type, as a type to point beyond itself to its fulfillment, its anti-type, which is the church, the new covenant community of Christ. Look at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us so that, that's the purpose, that we might not desire evil as they did. Look at what the text says. He doesn't say, you know, Israel had their own thing going on a long time ago and we can learn from their mistakes. No, he says these things took place. They were ordained in the very first place for our benefit. So that we might read the scriptures, so that we might look back on their unfaithfulness and be moved in our hearts to not desire evil. You want to know how to kill evil desires, read the Old Testament with Christian eyes. Look at the cultural sins of your fathers so that your faith might be strengthened in the word of Christ. If you put yourself first, instead of denying yourself for the sake of others, if the glory of God is not your chief aim, then how can you have that smug sense of security? On what basis? See, Paul is getting to the heart of idolatry here because he seems to be saying, brothers, is eating food offered to idols at the temple more important than glorifying God? Is it more important than loving your brothers so that they don't stumble? Is cultural integration and acceptance more important than Christ? Beloved, when God is displaced as the supreme object of our love and worship, something else rushes in and sits on the throne of our hearts. When we fail to love God as we should, when we fail to give Him our exclusive love and adoration, when we fail to commit to His Word above all else, we commit idolatry. And the symptoms of this worship disorder most often shows up when we fail to love one another, when we give in to the demands and the pressures of culture and society instead of conforming to the Word of Christ. And that's why Paul could look at these Corinthians and say, your problem is idolatry. Your God is yourself. And you seem to be happy to sacrifice the spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters just so that you can go to a dinner party at the temple. How can you think that God is pleased with you? Even in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy warns against this kind of presumptuous attitude. Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 to 19. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. What is that bitter fruit? One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, 
When he hears the word of God, he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Did you hear that? This is someone who reads God's word, hears God's word, and says, I'll be okay. Even though if my heart is hardened, even though if I'm stubborn, even though if I don't fight sin, even though if I don't obey. I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Now, most of the members on the elders care list are on that list because of this kind of thinking. And that's what these puffed up Corinthians were thinking. And Paul says to them, this sort of stubborn unrepentance will only result in disaster. Don't desire evil. That's a strong word, isn't it? If you're not desiring to love as Christ loved, if you're giving in to your sinful appetites, you are desiring evil. Brothers, to desire your own way or the ways of your culture, or to follow your own heart instead of the word of Christ is to desire evil, and there's no security in that. Don't be deceived. Perhaps you've been married to your husband for many years, and you're exceedingly quarrelsome. You're a quarrelsome wife. Perhaps you've been disrespectful to your husband, unconcerned about the welfare of your home, but you think, I'm okay. I'm safe. I've been a Christian for 20 years now. I'm gifted. I've been baptized. I'm a member. I take the Lord's Supper on the first of every month. I never miss it. I'm active at Grace Church. Watch out. There's an iceberg ahead. It never ends well for those who continue to take God's grace for granted. How you respond to saving grace matters. If you've been a Christian for some years now, maybe you're a man who loves sound theology, love the sermons at this church, and yet you never seem to have any time for the Bible. You never seem to have any time to disciple others or be discipled. Brothers, be careful lest you disqualify yourself from the race. Take care that you do not fall away from the faith. History has given us many examples of many gifted Christians who have walked away from Christ. Just in the last decades, more than a dozen well-known Christians have abandoned the faith. Most of them pastors. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's right after this text that he calls us to listen to his words, to trust and obey and build our house on the rock. Friends, a confession of faith is necessary and important. Spiritual giftedness is important for the building up of the body. 
but a daily life of repentance and faith in Christ and obedience is required to persevere till the end. Yes, we have assurance through the Spirit. Yes, we have assurance in Christ. But that is demonstrated by a life of active repentance and obedience. Our fathers, they all received many gifts of grace. With most of them, the vast majority of them, God was not pleased. Be careful that you do not fall away. Paul says, don't desire evil. Don't lust after selfish desires. Don't be self-indulgent. And here's the first manner in which they responded. They responded in false worship. So here's the first warning. Look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is a quotation from Exodus 32, verse 6, describing how the people of Israel made a name for themselves uh, by making a golden calf, sacrificing to it. This is right after they received the Ten Commandments and entered into a covenant with the Lord at Sinai. They made an idol, a calf, they called the calf Yahweh, and they worshipped it as the God who brought them out of Egypt, and then they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to it. They ate and drank in its presence. They rose up to play. That word play is suggestive of immoral sexual activity. You see what happens? False worship leads to false ethics. This is really Paul's concern here. Notice the similarities. Some of these Corinthians were where? At the temples, where idols were being worshipped. They ate meat offered to these idols along with other worshippers of these false gods. They socialized, they drank. It was well known that sexual immorality was rampant in Corinth. And it's very possible that Paul was concerned that the more these Corinthian Christians continued to indulge in these gatherings, the more susceptible they would be to all kinds of immoral activity. Which is why I think he mentions the second response as a warning. Look at verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That's how many people died under the wrath of God. You know, this incident is recorded for us in Numbers 25. This was a time when Israel was in Shittim, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people who gave themselves over to sexual immorality with the women of Moab. Moses tells us that God sent a plague that killed 23,000 in a single day. The passage in Numbers records 24,000, including the chief leaders of the people who were also put to death. But you know what's interesting about that passage? It's how people fell into sexual immorality, how they gave in. No Israelite got up one morning and said, oh, it's Tuesday, I don't have anything to do. I'm kind of bored. What should I do? Oh, I know. I'll go and commit some act of sexual immorality with a Moabite woman. Nobody did that. No, Moses tells us that it all started with Moabite hospitality. The Moabite said, hey, why don't you guys join us for dinner at our sacrifices? Numbers 25 verse 2 tells us that they attended the sacrifices of these gods. Chief among them was Baal. They sat down, they ate, they eventually bowed down to Baal, and then they began to whore with the daughters of Moab. 
You see the progression? These people were part of the community of Israel who were redeemed from Egypt. And yet they died under the Lord's judgment because they desired evil. Here's the third warning. This is how you should not respond. Look at verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This incident is found in Numbers 21. If you remember, the people of Israel often had a craving for meat. They often had a craving for the delicacies of Egypt. And in Numbers 21, verse 5, the people spoke against God and they spoke against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, there's no water. We, we, we hate, we loathe this worthless food. Referring to the manna. Psalm 78, 24 and 25 calls the manna grain from heaven. The bread of angels. This bread prefigured the true bread from heaven, Christ himself. What God had provided for their sustenance and their life, they called worthless. And they craved for other foods. And because of that, God sent fiery serpents into the camp and they bit the people and many died. Psalm 78 verses 18 to 19 said, they tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Do you understand how that works? To test God is to not trust His word. And to not trust His word is to test the Son of God Himself, who is the living word, the one who is our Redeemer. Brothers, we test God when we demand what we want, what is culturally exalted, instead of trusting in the word of Christ, which is sufficient for life and godliness. His word which can sanctify us and enable us to endure till the end. The reason cultural temptations are so powerful is because we believe the lie that we are losing out in some way. And so we crave. We crave to do what others are doing. This is what the unbelieving world does. They test God in their hearts by proclaiming their goodness. We're not sinners. We don't need God. If you disagree with God's assessment of yourself, you're testing Him. We don't need Christ in Him alone. Is Jesus the only way? You're testing God if you don't trust in His provision for you. When the Israelites were dying, the Lord told Moses to lift up a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And if anyone was bitten, all they had to do was look. Look and live. There was nothing magical about that bronze serpent. It was a sign that pointed forward to the work of Christ himself. All they had to do to be saved from perishing was to believe God's word and look and live. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, verses 14 and 15, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever 
believes in Him may have eternal life. Friends, this is the heart of the gospel. That if you abandon your self-sufficiency, if you abandon your wisdom, if you abandon your cultural ways of thinking, for all those things have been judged by God as futile and sinful. God calls us to abandon those things and to turn to Him. If you don't know Him, if you don't believe Him, repent of your unbelief. Repent of your sins and turn to Christ. Stop putting Him to the test. Call on Him to make Himself known to you. Believe on Him and you shall have eternal life. You see, God saves sinners in such a way that makes no sense to any human culture. It's foolish and scandalous, says Paul. He died on a cross. He was lifted up as a substitutionary sacrifice for anyone who would repent of their sins and trust in Him. And just like those Israelites, you need to look and live. Believe on Him and you will be saved. Believe on Him and you will be saved. This is how anyone can be saved from God's eternal judgment. Church, do you have eternal life? That's a strange question, Pastor. Why do you ask us Christians if we have eternal life? Because I want to know if you understand what eternal life is. Eternal life produces a very different culture. It's a culture that is marked by a daily repentance of your sins, a daily turning to the Word of Christ and a willingness to obey Jesus even if we face the scorn and the rejection of all the cultures in the world. You see, it is in the community of Christ, in the church, that we cast away our dependence on ourselves. We deny ourselves, we deny our sinful desires, and we put our trust in the Word of the cross. That's the saving word that is able to heal us. That's the saving word that can cleanse us from our idolatries and produce in us by the Spirit of Christ self-control, love. And that's what Paul wants to say to these Corinthians who were saying, I want to attend these gatherings. Paul, I want to. I want to attend those gatherings. I want to eat. And Paul says, put a knife to those desires. They are drawing you to the wrong places and your actions are causing much harm to your brothers. Your desire for cultural acceptance at these places is evil. Don't put Christ to the test. Christian love is about denying your desires to build up the faith of others. Look to the cross, trust in its message, and the Spirit will produce in you the fruit of self-control. Now it's likely that some of these leaders didn't like what Paul was saying. And they began to grumble. And so Paul warns them that that too is an idolatrous response. So here's the fourth warning. Look at verse 10. Don't grumble. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now the people of Israel grumbled at various times through their wilderness journey. But this is probably a reference to Korah's rebellion, if you remember. When Korah and a few leaders grumbled against God's choice of leaders. And it's very possible that Paul is bringing up this response because they were grumbling against his apostleship. And so he reminds them that those grumblers were destroyed by the destroyer. That's a reference to God's destroying angel. Friends, to grumble is also a symptom of idolatry where your heart says, I am not happy that I'm not getting what I want. 
we covet what is dangerous. And then when someone challenges us that we're not wanting what is in line with the scriptures, we start to grumble. Grumble. Brothers, these warnings are God's grace to us so that we might heed them and not be judged, but preserved by grace. See, God's word is filled with his judgments and we need to hear them and repent. All these people who were judged were judged over a period of 40 years. They were not all wiped out in one single event. One event after the other. Look at verses 11 to 12. Now these things happened to them as an example. Now do you remember in verse 6, he said that these things took place as examples for us. But here he says, they were examples for them as well. One after another. And they never learned, did they? How tragic is that? But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Beloved, the end of the ages or the last days began with the first coming of Jesus Christ. We are in the last days. And just like Israel, we are sojourners in the wilderness of this world, on our way to the heavenly promised land, the new earth. And these scriptures are for our instructions. They are given to us who are living in the times of fulfillment. They are given to us to help us get home. Brothers, we dare not neglect these warnings. These warnings are for those who think they stand for those who are so self-assured, they don't see the dangers of living a complacent Christian life. Paul is speaking to these Corinthians who thought to themselves, Oh, no, 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 we are strong in the faith, Paul. We can do what we want. You know, some commentators even think that these teachers had a superstitious understanding of the Lord's Supper. They thought that taking the Lord's Supper regularly protected them, kept them safe from demons, and so they could run their spiritual ship into icy waters with no fear. I wonder if you have a superstitious understanding of what it means to be a member of the church. As though being a member affords you special protection, a kind of insurance on the day of judgment. You think that regularly attending and participating in the supper makes you unsinkable. You think those things and you don't have any interest in pursuing a life of repentance and obedience and genuine heartfelt fellowship. Perhaps you think that as long as I attend and I'm a member, I can live my life in culturally defined, culturally acceptable, culturally glorifying ways. You think those things and you tragically don't read the Word of God regularly? Your marriage looks like an ultimate fighting club. You have no time to love and serve your family or other members. And your children who attend Grace Kids seem to know more sound doctrine than you do. Brothers, take heed lest you fall. You know, the opposite of standing strong in the faith is falling. It's falling away. It's making a shipwreck of your faith. Paul is talking about apostasy. 
But if these dangers are real, if they're clear and present, then where can we go? Where can we find help? Where can we find assurance? How can we face the storm? And Paul says, by turning to the captain of our salvation himself, Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our third and final point. Where you put your trust matters. Where you put your trust matters. Look at verse 13. No temptation or no trial or test. That's what, that's what that word means. He's not talking about God producing evil desires in you. He's talking about the trials that God brings our way. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. What's he talking about? Now he's addressing these teachers, but he's also addressing the entire congregation at Corinth. Every you in this verse, every your, is plural. He's addressing the congregation. This is a common temptation to the members at the church at Corinth. And he specifically has in mind this temptation to accept invitations to eat at the temple. And beloved, that tells you that this is not just about the food. It's not just about the food. It's not that the, the, the meat at the temple was especially tasty. Oh, I got to go there and get my steak. No, this is about cultural pressure. See, very often God's people drift into idolatry and enter into temptation together. We've learned that from the life of Israel. This is pure pressure. That's the real trial. See, Paul anticipates that these teachers might say, Oh, Paul, you don't understand, Paul. If we don't go, we'll become social outcasts. This is where I make my business deals. This is where I get to rub shoulders with important people. I get this all the time. People will say to me, Pastor, you don't understand Filipino culture. You don't understand American culture. Oh, you spend a lot of time outside of India. You don't understand Indian culture. You don't understand the pressures. There's always that special pleading. I understand what the Bible says about how I should steward my money, but what will my relatives in the Philippines or Nigeria say? I understand what Scripture says about shaping my priorities according to God's Word, but at the end of the day, Pastor, I need to do what's best for me. You don't understand. Brothers, the winds of culture will always blow and always beat against you. Paul says what you're facing is nothing unique. Take your special pleading, put it in the recycle bin. No temptation has seized you that is not common to man. Israel was constantly tempted by Egyptian ways. Their downfall was because they integrated into the cultures around them. They worshipped other gods. So set aside your special ple pleadings. If you stay that course, you will hit an iceberg. Here's what you need to trust and remember, says Paul. God is faithful. There lies your assurance. There lies your help. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Do you remember the first time He said that? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 8 to 9. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called. God will preserve you. God will help you. God is your strength. Brothers, remember that God is sovereign over your trials. Where it comes from, 
there is no test, no trial that he sends your way that he means to destroy you. That's not his intention. He knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. His spirit lives in you. If you're going through a particular trial where your obedience might be tested, God didn't make a mistake in assigning that trial to you. He is faithful. Beloved, I want you to hear this. He is faithful. He loves you. He will preserve you. He disciplines you so that you might grow in holiness. He sends it to strengthen your faith in Him and you respond by turning to Him. But with the temptation, says Paul, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God doesn't remove you from that trial. Did you note that? He helps you so that you may be able to do what? Endure it. Go through it well without making a shipwreck of your faith. God knows exactly what He's doing. Trust in Him. Brothers and sisters, there are principles here that we can use to overcome individual temptations to sin, but Paul is addressing the church as a whole here. Grace Church, God is not going to take away our trials with the world, with respective with our respective cultures. No, we are to be in the world, but not of it. The goal is to endure it. But with every trial, He provides the way of escape. It is His faithfulness to, to us in Christ that is our way of escape. His grace is sufficient for us in every trial, every temptation, so that we don't sin in those trials. Jesus himself is our way of escape. This is how the church stays holy in the world. And that means we must believe this promise. Brothers and sisters, believe this promise that Christ has overcome the world and through our faith in him, we can withstand any trial. God's grace is given to us in the scriptures. We are united to his son who overcame the world. We must heed these warnings. They are the means by which we avoid a shipwreck. We must put our faith in the wisdom of the cross instead of ourselves. We must believe that Jesus is better than anything this world affords. And we must believe that His ways are wiser and more satisfying. And that means remembering who you are. Remember which community you belong to. The heavenly culture that the word of Christ creates is our culture. You know, sometimes we don't like the way of escape, not because God is unable, because that means worldly loss for us. What will I lose if I obey? Beloved, we must be willing to suffer scorn and loss in the path of obedience. It is worth it. It is worth it. Know this, you are not alone in any of those trials. You are in a community on whom the end of the ages has come. We're almost home. We're almost home. So put to death. Flee idolatry. Say no to anything that gets in the way of obeying Christ. God is faithful. And He will take us home. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we look to you.
to preserve us. Our confidence lies in you. Our security is in Christ. Oh Lord, we look to the cross where Christ achieved all our saving benefits and we ask that your spirit would empower us to withstand, to endure, to overcome any trial or temptation that you may send our way. Help us believe your word. Help us trust in it. Help us believe this promise and help us endure. Hold fast to us, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.